This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at upcase.com. My in-laws are moving in uh, today. Oh. Like, as soon as we're done. Exciting? (laughs) Are you going to make them stay on the poop rug downstairs, or...? Well, so we offered to move uh, into the guest bedroom, but we figured it would just be easier to not have to move that furniture Mm. and then move it again in a few months when Tess and I move out. But then, you know, we ended up taking a job in Canada (laughs) and visas take a while and it doesn't feel worth it to like go move and rent another house for a few months. Hmm. Sounds like it's going to be a delightful few months. Yeah. (laughs) Hi, Derek. Hi, Sean. How are you? It's good. It's good. It's getting better. That's getting better where we reverse it. It's almost normal now. Almost. Um, we've had a lot of feedback lately. It's been good to read. And we keep saying, I keep responding to people and giving them little bits of like how I feel about things and then saying, we may talk about this on the show. And then we always have um, the other things that we want to talk about, things that we've been currently working on. But I thought it'd be good to kind of go through some of the feedback that we've got. What do you think? I think that sounds great, especially since we, as we just found out, I don't actually get emails anymore, <laughs> right. which we will fix after this show. Hopefully. This show will be me reading Bike Shed emails to Sean. <laughs> we get emails. Send us lots of email. That's great. I don't know if we'll, if we'll do like listener questions on the regular, but uh, you know, you can always email us at host at bikeshed.fm and who knows, maybe we will. Um, so Edward Lovell, who uh, actually used to produce the Giant Robots podcast for us, um, our parent podcast sort of i guess you could say uh he wrote in with a question about dry so uh, on an episode a long time ago we talked about or specifically you talked about how new students were trying to dry up the code and not the concepts or something like that uh do you guys remember this and do you have any more thoughts of that i feel like i have some intuitive understanding of where and when to apply dry code but not enough to explain it to a student uh i think dry and srp go hand in hand in that you want single to responsibility try, principle the single responsibility and principle. dry is don't repeat yourself for people who might not know that right okay. and the single responsibility principle has varying interpretations by different people but the way i've i've always interpreted it is that a class should have only one reason to change and so the same applies to dry code might look very similar and might look duplicated but isn't something that you want to extract because it would change for different reasons Right. And I think the classic example that always comes to my mind, and it's something that I definitely tried to do when I was getting started with Rails, is like, Rails is really the first, Ruby is the first programming language I learned that, like, where dry was a mantra that, like, people just repeated constantly. And, like, it was always a good idea not to duplicate things. But when you were doing Ruby, it was just, like, it was the first programming language I remember doing where I was constantly hearing dry, don't repeat yourself, don't repeat yourself. And then I would write these RESTful controllers and be like, all of these actions are identical across all of these controllers. I need to do something. And so I would, set, I would set up some inheritance hierarchies. And then I found inherited resources, which is basically inherited, inheritance hierarchies for your controller out of the box. And I was like, oh, this is fantastic. Now my controller, you're basically just like, I declare this controller. I say it's an inherited resource controller, and, and that's it. Like the controller body is empty. And then eventually a uh, reason comes along that in a create action, you need to, I don't know, build some associated objects or something like that. So you're like, oh, okay, well, I, I guess I call super or something. And then you find out inherited resources has this weird syntax where you, you can pass a block 
API, API, not syntax. Uh, sorry, yeah. Has this weird API where you can pass a block and it calls super and then does this other thing, or like maybe you need to change the redirect URL at the end. There's all these little things that start to creep up, and those are what you're talking about. Those are the different reasons that those things are going to change. So you think that all these controllers are the same, but they're all actually going to change for unique reasons. And the cost of like extracting out so so what you did was you dried everything up from the beginning and then you found all these reasons why individual parts need to change and then you would special case those individual parts and every time you'd have to go and look up in the inherited resources case you'd have to go and look up what the api for doing that is right because you're gonna forget and it's just gonna happen um well now i also can't tell what your controller is doing like you can say oh it's just doing a normal edit action but maybe i don't know what that is or don't want to have to remember what that is right and and what it saved you really was six or seven lines of, yeah, kind of boilerplate stuff, but like boilerplate because there isn't necessarily a more abstract way to do it. It's very procedural because it's a controller, and that's kind of where it's at, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, I think with controllers, one of the other little, I guess, litmus tests for should you dry something up is... Uh, like, so pretend that you couldn't use any DSLs or inheritance. So the only thing you could do to dry up your code is extract a method or extract a totally new object. You couldn't actually reduce the number of lines of just about any action in your controller. Right. Like, the only way, for example, to remove the duplication of at user equals user dot find params ID would be to use before action. Otherwise, it's always going to be extracting one line to a method. Um, which isn't a bad thing, but I don't know for for whatever reason to me that that kind of indicates like maybe this is something that should stay where it is because any way any action you could take to dry it up is going to make it significantly harder to understand. Right, and the way I heard it explained, I think it was Avdi I heard say this basically. I, I don't know if it, he deserves original credit for it or not, but the the way I heard it explained is what you're trying to do is dry up the sources of knowledge in your system and not the typing. You're not trying to deduplicate what you're typing. You're trying to make make it so that only one thing knows how to do task X, right? And in the the case of controllers, task X is like, you know, for your users create action, it's to create a user, right? It's not create a generic resource. That's not the knowledge that you're trying. Like when you try and lift it to that high level of an abstraction, it's it's difficult to get correct. Yeah, I, I think that can also be a confusing definition, though. For example, like if you're deciding whether or not to uh, to extract out the setting at user into a before action, okay. So is the knowledge I'm extracting how to go about finding a user? But is that then the question is is that even the right knowledge? Like, I personally would argue, don't do that. Leave it. You know, put that same line in your in your four different actions because what user uh, how you're going to go about finding a user? A user is probably a bad example because users are always super special case. But like a post, right? You actually probably want to 404 for different reasons. And presumably the way you're going to do that is just by having find fail by adding some additional scope before you call find, right? But that's going to be potentially different for show, edit, update, and destroy. Mm -hmm. um, so like in the, in the post example, you're talking about like if I'm going to edit a post, when I'm finding the post to display on the form, I might do current user.post.find. But if I'm going to just show a post, I'm just going to do find. That kind of thing. Right. So I 404 for a different reason. Like I might 404 on that edit form if it's if I'm trying to edit your post, for instance, rather than the current user's post. Yeah, and, it, and maybe it gets even more complicated, right? Where right. like you've There's got organization groups and maybe involved, right. yeah. you can edit other users' posts in your group, but you can only destroy posts that belong to you. Like these all are things that 
I actually think the code is just harder to understand if you if you break it apart anyway, which for me is a, a non-starter. But ignoring that argument, right? I mean, even if it's as simple as okay, well, only show is a special case here. Yeah, but edit, update, and destroy can all also change for different reasons. Probably the only ones that would always change in sync with each other are edit and update. Right. Yeah, and there's like two other things that came to mind when I started thinking about this was. Um, Sandy Metz has a great saying, which is duplication is far cheaper than the wrong abstraction. And that's from her talk, All the Little Things, which was her RailsConf talk in 2014. She actually pushes out, pushed out a um, newsletter. You should all sign up for it because it's not like it comes out um, very frequently. I think it's like once a month or something like that. Um, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. And in it, she makes the point that when you find yourself in that wrong abstraction case, it's then like very attractive to be like, okay, well okay, I found a reason that these things need to change independently. And now I have to special case that. And so you start going down this and you, and you special case it. And then some, another reason comes up and you're like, okay, well, I've got to special case this other thing. And what you're doing at that point is you're ignoring the signs that you have made the wrong abstraction, or you are kind of engaging in that sunk cost fallacy where you're like, well, I spent all this time drawing up this beautiful abstraction. I've got to stick with it, right? When in reality, the only practical thing to do at that point is to just say, like, that was a wrong decision, and then go back to the point where you had the duplicated code, and, you know, maybe some point you'll find a better abstraction. So that was one thing that, you know, pretty timely, because that, that newsletter just came out, like, last week or the week before, and I, I thought it was pretty appropriate to the conversation that I was having with, uh, with Edward. And the other thing that I see, I've seen retweeted a couple times, I think it was from Sarah May, who's been a guest on the show before, which is basically just the repeated saying that inheritance is not for sharing code. It's something I see in a lot of languages, but I do feel like that's a particularly Railsy affectation, is using inheritance for sharing code a lot. I'm not even sure that it's a Rails thing. Like I think Ruby, in general, yeah. is a pretty uh, yeah. inheritance-happy community. Yeah, that's true. Well, Just put it in a module, man. <laughs> right. Um, inheritance isn't for code readers, but modules are. <laughs> modules are inheritance. Shh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I can say all these things in the podcast where I'm not actually sitting down developing something, and then I sit down on an app, and I'm like, you know, it'd be really easy. I just put an API-based controller, and I threw some things on there. And there we go. Okay, done. Or if I included a mix in here that had these like template methods defined in a reasonably sane way. And then I just over overrode them places rather than, um, you know, defining them each individually. Like I, I'm on a project right now that has um, it's for namely, it's an open source project. So I can probably put a link in the show notes. So check that out. But what it does is connect to these various other HR information systems and syncs between namely and them. And so we have connections to NetSuite, which is another provider. And we have connections to Jobvite, which is a job posting board where you can import and export things. So we have like a Jobvite connection class, a NetSuite connection class. And those all have some methods on it that declare kind of like what that connection supports. And so we duplicate those method bodies everywhere where it's like def, um, I can't remember, um, the names of these methods are escaping me, but I don't know, something ubble, right? Do you have this ability in your connection to do this thing? And then it's false for all of them except one or for all of them except two, right? And so there's like four of these methods that just are duplicated everywhere. And when I started doing that, like I, when I came into the project, it was already like that. And I was like, well, maybe there should just be a, a base class or a mix-in that gives you a template for these that all define to false. And then you just override whatever you want to true. But that's using inheritance for deduplication, basically. And no other reason other than that. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea that 
all the child classes are ever providing is basically the answer to a conditional is probably a sign of whatever whatever's actually using those methods probably could be refactored yeah yeah we've thought about that too but mm, just hasn't come up yet I mean, a lot of like, I think this comes up a lot when I talk to people about the podcast. A lot of what we're talking about is like, in an ideal world, this is what I would like to do. And we try to ground it in ground it in a discussion of like, this is what we really do. But when the rubber really hits the road, sometimes it's easier just to do like, well, this is the way Rails does things. I'm going to do it the Railsy way. Or this is the way that, you know, this is the quickest way to get this part done. And it's, it's just this one little thing. I'm going to do it this way, right? <laughs> like... Well, I think, I think it's also a little bit different when you're talking about, for example, stuff that just absolutely has to be in a controller. I think if you try to not rely on inheritance for code reuse among your controllers, for controller-specific logic, it, just because of the way Rails is structured, it's, it's going to make it difficult for you just because you have so many methods that need to be called on self. Mm -hmm. Same is true of Active Record. It's just really, really hard to actually break apart objects when the root of all of this is some object that has hundreds of methods that you presumably actually need a large number of but all exist on the same object so it's it becomes impossible to actually compose it in different or interesting ways or in the case of a controller even compose it at all right what else on what else on dry i feel like we could talk about dry forever but that was you know i think it's basically a summed dry up the point. episode <laughs> basically summed up the point is that like you need to be careful about what you're what you're drying up and try and look for like do these have would, would these change for the same reason or would these change independently I think the uh, only other thing to mention, too, is that uh, tests should have completely different rules. Um, for me, I never extract anything from my tests for the purpose of reducing duplication. Uh, it's always because whatever method I extracted out, when I put that method in place of the code that I extracted, the test better expresses the intent behind what I'm doing than was there before. Yes, absolutely. I, my tests are some of the more undry code I've ever written. Um, specifically because I want each test in its entirety, like on its own, um, independently from the other tests in the file to tell a story that is like describes, you know, we're writing our spec here. So you have the describe and you have the it, and then you're like, okay, when I do all of these things, this is what happens. This is what I expect done versus having when you have like a let block up top, which is a way of deduplicating things. Right. So when you have one let you're like, okay, cool. That's just kind of like a method. And then you have like two lets and then you're overriding something in the let and you've got a before block somewhere and you're nested three levels deep and it starts to get pretty pathological pretty quick. So, yeah, I think the only time I ever actually use let unless of course it's, you know, legacy code and I'm actually needing to do funky stuff is just let user. What, for the case of just I need to be signed in and I don't actually care. There's no details about the user that are in any way relevant other than that I need to be signed in. Hmm. So you do let user. If you didn't need that user back, so that's let bang user, right? To make it... I don't use the bang form. Okay, so then you need to reference user somewhere in order to get that user created, right? Right, but again, the important thing being, you know, I'm referencing it, for example, in the case of clearance, uh, using clearance backdoor, visit whatever path as user... Uh, if I wasn't using clearance, I'd probably have a helper sign in as, which takes a user object or something like that. But uh, like it'll be it'll be referenced. But the point being that I won't ever reference user dot something. It'll always be I'm referencing the user because all I care about is that the user exists, so that I can be signed in as that user. Right. And that's the only relevant detail. Okay. Yeah, I guess I don't. I guess I for the most part, I'm trying to think like that specific case. I'd probably, I usually care who the user is. I guess. Because like I want that user to own the post or something like. But I, I mean, I suppose there are cases where I do 
where I'll do something like visit such and such path as create user, right? In that case, I definitely don't care because I didn't store a reference to who the user was. I just created the user in line. So there's definitely cases where you're where I'm basically doing a cheap let there. And, th- and that's the thing is I think um, relying on stuff like that can actually make your code more prone to or your tests more prone to bugs uh, just because it's then a lot easier to accidentally create two users when you intend when you didn't intend to. Right. Yep. Yep. But yeah, but even in, in the other example, like, yeah, if I need the user to own, a, own the post, then in the test, I'll be doing user.post.create. Yep. Right. But, but that still doesn't actually mean that I care about anything about the user other than now what I've explicitly stated in the test. Right. We're on board. We're together on this. Make the yeah. test read nice. That's what I. That's what I'm extracting methods out usually for. Is like if there's some noisy setup of some doubles that I need or something like that, then you know maybe I'll extract out a method that better names what I'm doing, basically. Right, and, and that's the main thing though, is because it better names it. Because um, the other danger with drawing up your tests too is that if you are hiding away painful setup, you might risk losing valuable feedback from your tests indicating something with your design. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely had that. That's generally the conversation when it gets to the point in a pull request is like, okay, you extracted this method so that you could set up one double, set up a second double, tap it, and assign this to this, assign like this double, this other, this first double as a result of calling new on this second double. Like, what? <laughs> is there a better way to go about it? And sometimes there isn't because you're interfacing with some sort of third party code, or sometimes the answer is like, let's just not use doubles and let's create the objects we need. But sometimes you're just like, well, we're going to go with this and we're going to name it like this. Or if you're using WebMock, the noise from WebMock in tests gets really loud. So I almost always want to extract out a method for that just so when I'm reading the test, I don't like if I if I if I just want to know that I'm mocking out a web, an HTTP call to do, you know, this other thing, then I can get that just from reading the one line method execution. And if I want to know exactly how it's being stubbed out, I can go check the definition of the method. Yeah. Well, and that's uh, another one that helps there too is have, moving the response body into a fixture file. Yeah. But then, you, but yeah, definitely that one is always going to be better off as a method name, as a named method, right? Because the URL presumably isn't actually going to give you necessarily the context that you. Um, and then yes, noise. Right. Um, let's take a quick break. Tell you about today's sponsor. Uh, today's sponsor of the show is Media Temple. For years, Media Temple's grid service has been the web hosting choice of more designers, developers, and creative professionals than any other platform. I feel like I first heard about them probably in the early 2000s, and they're still around, still doing great work, still keeping everybody's sites up and running. So Media Temple is a great choice for creative professionals and developers because your single grid account can do any number of things. So you can use it to host your portfolio or your single web application, or perhaps you're doing some consulting or uh, freelancing for many different clients. You can host hundreds of different client projects all on your one grid account. And that grid is going to be ready for anything. There's hundreds of servers that are working together to keep your sites online. They know all about noisy neighbors and how to avoid taking your site down when your neighbor's site hits Reddit. And they know how to keep your site up when your site hits Hacker News or Reddit or anything like that. There's a special discount for Bike Shed listeners. You can use the promo code BIKE25 for 25% off web hosting when you sign up with Media Temple. So go to mediatemple.net and enter that promo code upon sign up. Thanks again to Media Temple for sponsoring the show. Okay, so another email we just got last week actually is from Eric Hayes. And he mentions that he opened up a Git, a, pull, a Rails pull request, and he has a number of questions about why it is that he hasn't gotten any attention. It's not merged and he hasn't gotten any comments, right? And it's not like a, his email isn't a matter of like, I can't believe nobody's commented on this. I committed code. It's like, well, what what can I do 
to make sure that my Rails pull request gets attention, right? And I think this is, goes beyond Rails. If you're con contributing code to anything that is large, right, and it's likely to get or potentially lost in the shuffle. Um, so his his hypotheses were maybe it's just a matter of time and priority. So the thing he's fixing is pretty low priority and nobody's gotten around to it yet, right? So that's one thing. The second thing is he's wondering if like his pull request title wasn't great. Like maybe a better pull request title would get more attention. Maybe there's a problem with the code that he doesn't, and like people are uncomfortable commenting on it, right? Or maybe because Travis is failing the build for whatever reason that he can't figure out, maybe they're not paying attention to it for that reason because it's failing. Um, and then he posted a link to the pull request that he had and was wondering like, what is our advice on going about getting a change noticed and merged into these larger projects? Okay, well, so I think I'm gonna try and answer all of those in abstract and then also look at the commit at the pull request so I can probably give a more specific answer. Um, so it's definitely not number three or four. If there was a problem with the code and that was what was up, uh, we would have commented. Even if it was just like this code is unacceptably bad, but I don't have a specific suggestion, we'll still say something along those lines. I, that's, I think that's only happened exactly once or twice. But if the problem's with the code, then yeah, we'll we'll definitely say something. Um, same thing if the change looks fine, but the build is failing, we'll say something because uh, we know that you don't get an email when the build um, finishes, and so unless you're actually remembering to go check, so we make a point to ping it uh, for that reason. I think the time and priorities point is a really poignant one. When you're opening a pull request to an open source project, I mean, you're, you are saying, here's some code I wrote, please maintain it for the rest of your life, uh, or the rest of its life, I guess. Um, if you look at the process, for example, of submitting a patch to the Linux kernel, the patches that are gonna that are gonna get accepted ultimately when they're pitching why this why this patch is needed why should why it should be included for me I look for all of that in the commit message because mm -hmm. that's just something I'm gonna want if I'm get blaming into that file so that helps a lot if you can really make it clear to me assuming that I know nothing about your problem what is it fixing why do, why should we fix it uh, why is this the best solution and also keep in mind that even if the bug might be apparent the use case that is affected by the bug might not be apparent so that's always helpful as well hopefully. A failing test case demonstrates that and not just like, oh, this bug used to be a, a thing and now it's not a thing. Yeah. And that's that kind of jives with I, I wrote back to him and I said, I don't I'm not a Rails committer, so I don't I can only offer an outsider perspective. But I, I suspected that, you know, it had only actually been open for under three weeks, which in Rails terms is not like not a super long time for a pull request to be out there. But I said that likely either nobody had had a chance to look at it or the people who had looked at it determined that they were not the best people to be looking at it, right? They weren't the most familiar with this code or they didn't quite understand, you know, what the problem was that you were, you were solving. Um, I mean, yeah, usually though, that's one of the things is that everybody who has any form of commit rights, even if we're, they're not the most qualified person for every part of the code, we do all know who the right people are for the right, for the various parts of the code base, Right. Or worst case, somebody of just paying for a fail. Um, <laughs> and then he delegates. <laughs> and then he delegates. You know, one, one thing that, that does happen sometimes, though, is so someone will submit a pull request and I'll look at him like, I don't want this, but I don't feel strongly enough against it to like actively deny Push it. Back, yeah. Yep. Uh, and I'd rather have somebody else who feels more strongly about it take an action one way or the other. And then either just nobody else ends up looking at it or nobody has a strong opinion on it. And we are actually very recently making several changes to try and improve a lot of these uh, problems. So for that one, 
nowadays, if I'm ever in that situation, I'll actively say, like, I don't have a strong uh, feeling about this. I don't think we I don't think we need it, but I don't feel strongly enough um, against it to reject it. And then if nobody feels strongly for it or to put it another way, if, if the person submitting the poll request wasn't able to convince anybody the reasons that we need it, uh, if the pitch was unsuccessful, um, then we're going to try and just be better about closing those or, you know, actively rejecting them. The the stale issues bot, which runs every month, and basically if an issue's had no activity for three months, it comments, and then um, two weeks later, if nobody has confirmed that the bug still exists, it auto-closes it. We don't do that for pull requests, and I think maybe we should. While it sucks to close a pull request that is somebody's work uh, because it was left inactive, ultimately if, if a pull request has been sitting there for over a year... It's unlikely that anybody's ever going to actually get right. to it. And the it's best thing they can do is un- It's also it. probably unmergeable at that point. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, they're, they're unmergeable after but a t- day. To be fair, though, like, issues are somebody's work, too, right? Um, they're not necessarily less work than fixing the bug ends up being, right? True. Um, so I don't think that that's a problem. Because what, what the bot is trying to do, and it's in a situation, again, like a project like Rails where there's 700 issues or whatever there is for issues plus pull requests these days. I don't know. And it's not like a case of clearance where there's like six issues and a pull request sitting out there, right? If I had a bot doing that, it would be like, okay, come on. You can just look at the seven issues and respond to them. But I feel like all the bot is doing is saying like, this has slipped people's radar. If you still feel strongly about it, speak up, right? And I think that's fair. And then if you don't speak up, then you didn't feel strongly about it. And nobody else felt strongly about it either because nobody else spoke up or noticed it the first time around. So, yep. um, and the other thing I suggested was like, if you feel like it's just slipped through the cracks and I feel like wh- one thing I mentioned is hasn't the rails team moved to like auto assigning PRs. Yeah. I, I, that was going to be my next. Yeah. So I said, I said like he probably just missed the cutoff for when they started auto assigning PRs to make sure that at least somebody looked at them. But my suggestion was like, do a git blame on the file see if there are some committer names that you recognize in there quite a lot, particularly if it's recently and be yeah, like, don't, don't actually do that though. If <laughs> all of the commit dates are like three plus years old, because right. a lot of files will show names of people who are no longer actively contributing to the right. project. And I did that once on a, on a, like when somebody first gave me this advice, I was like, okay, great. And I like pinged the three people who had been heavily editing that file. And one of them had not edited anything in rails in like three years. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, Oh, okay. Well that went wrong. Um, and also, like, the pinging people, you don't know if they're paying attention to those pings. Like, they get flooded. Like, if you're pinging Aaron Patterson, I don't know how closely he's paying attention to those things. He gets pinged on a lot of things. Yeah, I mean, we, we do ask that people don't ping, unless it is for the purpose of just this is a thing that you know for certain that's the right person. Uh, that's the person who, who needs to review it, uh, which even then we've had a couple of issues of just people sort of abusing that um, but yeah, uh, like especially though, if something just sits around for for a bit of time, uh, if if it's any activity has happened, it's on somebody's radar. So we do ask that people not ping after that point, and definitely never comment with like a plus one comment because those just, you know, we we all have it set so that we get emails uh, whenever anything happens on Rails, and the inbox noise of somebody just commenting plus one on a, on a pull request or an issue is never. Uh, don't do that on any of my projects either, even though they don't have seven hundred issues. <laughs> I just cannot stand that. Like, if if you want to say I'm experiencing this problem as well, then find a way to do it that adds more information. Right. Right. Find a way to say like, here's an alternative way you can also hit this bug, or like, I noticed there was no test case. Here's a test case, or I I noticed there were no steps to reproduce. Here are the exact steps I go about to reproduce this problem. Or you know, if there is some debate in the issue where I'm like, oh, I can't get this to, I I don't know, I haven't seen this before. Then you can chime in and be like, no, I have seen this as well. 
but you don't just plus one. Like, I don't know what plus one means. Like, try to add some, try to add something of value. Um, yeah, it, it's not like, it's not like we're going to be, oh, it's only that one guy who's affected by the bug. So we're just not going to fix it. I, I aggressively delete plus one comments from, <laughs> from my repositories. I just go through and remove them. Thank you very much. And that's it. And if there's a lot, I'll be like, please, no more plus ones. And now they lock it that you can actually... Uh, have issues locked, which is a new GitHub thing. Since I've yeah, had this that's problem, that's what we but. do as well. Uh, although we had one issue where we lock uh, somebody uh, opened a new issue, uh, which was probably the right thing to do. Maybe tweeting, I don't, I don't know. But where um, it was just getting spam with plus one comments, so we locked it, and then the bot marked it as stale. <laughs> <laughs> and there was no way for anybody to comment like this issue still exists because we had locked it from all the plus one comments. <laughs> But yeah, that was the other thing uh, that you that you touched on briefly. We 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 introduced a new bot. Um, I think two weeks ago now. Uh, that whenever any issue comes in or any pull request comes in, picks a reviewer and then depending on files can narrow the pool. And if it doesn't know, just ultimately does it at random. But basically, it picks a single person whose job it is to either review that pull request or assign it to somebody better suited. And so we're hoping that will reduce the number of things that just come in and never get seen because it, it's sort of the same logic as uh, if some if somebody's hurt, you're not supposed to shout, somebody call an ambulance. You're supposed to point at somebody in the crowd and say, hey, you call an ambulance. And I think the same logic applies here. Once it's somebody's specific responsibility to make sure that that pull request is taken care of at the time that it comes in, I think that'll help reduce the number of instances where this occurs. Yeah. And like there were a couple other specific things he talked about. So when we said like, is it a problem with the code? One of the things he wondered was like, uh, the code he was touching, he felt like it begged for some like extract method refactorings, right? And like, should is, is it being is nobody uh, looking at it because you know he didn't extract those methods and people find it confusing, kind of thing. Uh, my advice on that one was to do the simplest change you could get to work, unless you're adding significant complexity, and then save the refactoring for after somebody has agreed like yep this looks good and they merge that in then maybe you're like what do you think if i refactored this to do this and try and get some or just do it and you know do it in another change um, because the more you start to refactor things the harder the, the review the review is to do and also the more likelihood that you're going to be introducing bugs and then the last bit was um you know he noticed his pull request wasn't mergeable anymore because it had strayed from master in a way that introduced some sort of conflict and my advice there was like if you really want to get something merged and you are afraid that getting somebody's attention is the hard part then if you notice it and you can easily rebase it then you should keep it rebased because if you get somebody's attention and they can just merge it right then then fantastic yeah i mean the problem with uh the with the rebasing is that it's always yeah. the merge conflicts is always the change log oh right that and too. so yeah. anytime we merge anything everything else becomes unmergeable i don't know why git can't resolve adding things to the top or the bottom of a file <laughs> maybe if we reversed our change log so that new entries went to the bottom actually because i know the, the reason it has issues with two methods being added is because there's the conflict of saying these both come before the line end right um and so actually i guess maybe that's the same thing here so i wonder if we changed the change log to be new entries go at the bottom it'd be great if just change log entries didn't cause merge conflicts ever Right. Because like one of the things they do on, on Rust, where we stole the, the auto-assigning PRs bot, uh, we stole from Rust, and they have another bot that they, that they use where when a pull request has been reviewed, the reviewer pings a bot and says, I reviewed at this commit ID, and it's good to merge. And the bot then runs CI, and if CI passes, merges it in, and they also have the option to specify to the bot, and also please squash all of the commits down when you're merging it. And then if there's a merge conflict when the bot tries to do it, 
you know, comments and, and all of that. But it's like a neat little thing that is really cool but doesn't really work if there's merge conflict. So it would never really work on Rails because there's always a merge conflict and it's always the change log. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. And I've assigned myself this PR. This this one uh, is just what I, I, I've been sort of taking a little bit of a break as I'm in between jobs and having a little bit of a vacation. So active record pull requests are a little backed up right now. So that's probably actually I, I do have comments on on this pull request. And if I'd seen it when it came in, I would have commented when it came in. Yeah. So this one in, in particular, though, is just because I'm on a little bit of a break. <laughs> no breaks yeah i mean i i only looked at it very briefly and it looks like so i guess you know we'll link to the pr in the show notes but um it tries to add timestamps to tables that you load with fixtures that are has many through or hasn't belongs to or something like that right is that what we're talking about here yeah it looks like it's a bug because of the fact that we change timestamps to be not null by default and that has issues with join tables right so my advice on the feature level, not necessarily on how to get your pull request merged, is like, could we just make fixtures always populate created at and updated at regardless of whether or not they're join tables? Like, Yep, that's the comment I was going to make as well. Is this doesn't seem like anything that should be specific to join tables. Right, and maybe I guess you could consider that a breaking change, but who cares? We're going Rails 5 anyway, so like you could, maybe you expect them not to be set? I don't... Well, that's the thing is now by default, they can't not be set. Right, but so... you have an existing app is what I'm saying where they aren't set. Right. Well, and we could also check if the column is not null. Yeah, I guess I would just say just populate them. Go from go from there. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's that's what I'm leaning towards as well. Cool. Good luck, Eric. Sean will review your code. And the last bit of feedback from last week too. Let's do one more. Sure, why not? It's from Pascal from the Netherlands. We're world famous. <laughs> <laughs> so he says i know you don't have a listener question segment on the show <laughs> we do now but i do have a burning question which i think which he thinks that we are the best ones to answer i can assure you once you hear the question you will not think we are the best ones to answer <laughs> i can go grab my fire extinguisher <laughs> so uh he likes the approach of having many small classes in ruby on our rails project we face a similar design choice on the javascript side but the big problem is that many small JS classes lead to many JS files, hence many Rails assets. And we found that after the upgrade from 3.2 to 4.2, the thin development server has become a lot slower, read painfully slow, with serving a great number of assets. I wonder if you have the same experience and what your advice would be. I mean, it sounds like he's running into the same issue that concatenating assets is meant to avoid. Right, but in development mode, we do not concatenate right, assets because right. so it now should you're, be faster. Right, now you're feeling that pain. Um, it might, like, I, I've not experienced that, and I have worked on Rails 4 apps that had large, Marshall Codex, for example, is an Angular app, and it had probably a couple hundred uh, different CoffeeScript files, and I, I never noticed that. Of course, like, after the app boots up for the first time, yes, it will take forever for the first request to respond, but then subsequent ones have been pretty fat i've never noticed any major slowdown so maybe it's a problem within uh perhaps changing to using unicorn in development might help with that the other thing that maybe you can rec- i could recommend is turn on concatenate assets in uh in development i don't i, I think we can do that without minifying them mm-hmm. it's, yes. it'll, it'll make stack traces harder but it's worth a shot to see if it solves this problem right yeah. And even if it's not the permanent solution it's like okay well that didn't solve it so what what is it now like what it, i mean i guess it could also be I mean, just because you updated Rails from three two to four two, make sure you're make sure you grab like the latest sprockets, maybe. Yeah, and make sure you've run uh, Rake Rails upgrade, uh, and that the config files have all been diffed and everything like that. Because it, it's it sounds like definitely something 
messed up uh, in that setup, and it and it very well might be a config option. Like uh, I don't know if we actually have it configurable whether or not to cache unchanged files. That sounds like a thing we would do, but uh, or that we would not have a config for because you would never not want that. But maybe there is a config flag that we added in Rails four and we defaulted to true in the file or something like that. Right. I've seen it more of an issue. I've seen the asset pipeline and development be more of an issue with SAS than it is with JavaScript personally. And that's because the way we do SAS at ThoughtBot is generally we don't use the sprocket style imports. We use the SAS style at import declarations. And I don't know if this is still the case, but for a long time, those were slower because you're recompiling the world every time you use those. Like there's no way for sprockets to partially cache the parts that it ha- that haven't changed. Yeah, and I believe that. Well, I believe that was fixed in SAS. In that SAS now does partially. Uh, oh, okay. I I don't know that for a fact. Don't quote me on it. I don't change style sheets terribly often, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I haven't been on a project with like a big set of style sheets in a long time, so I haven't really that I've been changing often. But I remember it being like in the Rails 4.0 days when we were on that project together, on uh, the T1D project. I remember that definitely being an issue. It'd be like, oh, I changed the things. It's going to time out. <laughs> then it would time out. Right. It would time out whenever it had to recompile everything. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, it seems like just watching, I remember watching the designers in Denver do their thing a couple of times and they all have uh, it set up so whenever they change a file, it auto-refreshes the browser, yeah. uh, which sounds like a thing that I should do because it looks fancy. But yeah, live reload, I never man. Have. Uh, but anyway, but they, it never seemed slow when they were changing style sheets. So it's been resolved somewhere. And I think okay. it was that SAS now partially compiles. Right. But yeah, to the listener who wrote in. Uh, Pascal. To Pascal. Uh, sorry, bro. Works on my machine. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Maybe there's something changing at like a high level in your JavaScript that's causing everything else, all the other caches to be invalidated and it has to recompile everything or something like that. I don't know. I don't think that's a thing, though. <sighs> Shh. <laughs> it sounded important. <laughs> um, so yeah, I told you we're not the best ones to answer this problem. <laughs> yeah, I, it, it really, it very well might just be thin is the problem because uh, right. anything that is single threaded, uh, there is a config option. No, no, that wouldn't <laughs> affect the asset pipeline. It's it's probably something where it's just not parallelizing properly because of thin. Would okay. be my guess. All right, so yeah, give unicorn a shot or Puma. Puma the, Puma's the thing now. We don't use unicorns. We're all about Pumas. But you And use a concurrent setup in development mode as well. Multiple, uh, you can't actually use a threaded server in development mode, but fork, you know, set up multiple forks. Right. I think that's it for our listener email. Hang on. Let me make sure we didn't have any, like, two bunch of people who want us to buy bike sheds. <laughs> yeah, those were some interesting emails we were getting for a little while there. Somebody wants to order a shed from us? Um, yeah, I guess that's basically, uh, all of our anywhere recent feedback. So anything else? Should we read out the one where the Chinese company specifically says, after looking at your website, bikeshed.fm, we have determined that you do in fact sell high quality bicycles and we would like you to sell our bike. <laughs> well, I think you just did. <laughs> okay. Yes. Cause that was it. I, I love that they specify after looking at the website. Well, we had, I mean, the cover art has kind of a bike thing on it. You know, maybe they were like, they're selling that bike. It's a fun, fancy looking bike. That is a high quality bike. It's a high quality stick figure bike. <laughs> Should we wrap up? Yeah, I think so. Let's do that wrapping up thing. What number? We're recording 33 today. Larry Bird's number. I know that means a lot to you. That's how I remember numbers. Like when I remembered phone numbers when I was a kid, I'd be like, oh, it's um, Larry Bird, Kevin McHale. It'd be 3332. 
okay. that type of thing. Anyway, carry on. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 33 slash Larry Bird. <laughs> if you have feedback on this episode or any other episode, you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. You can tweet us at underscore bikeshed. Ratings and reviews on iTunes are greatly appreciated. If you're not the iTunes reviewing type, just tell three of your friends about the show. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. Uh, send us a tweet at at underscore bikeshed or just leave a comment on the website. If you'd like to discuss Larry Bird, you can email me at hosts at bikeshed.fm. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Bike Shed. We'll see you again next time.